You're listening to part one of a conversation between former Aerosmith manager Keith Gard and Tamara Federici, producer of every band ever, already in progress. They're amazing. <laughs> They're amazing. Yes. You know, and and yeah. to watch watch Tyler and Perry work, to see Brad Whitford, who is an, truly an unsung, if not the unsung hero of what Aerosmith always was and, and, and is absolutely today, his skill, musicianship, ge- genius. I asked Joe, I once asked Joe early on, so dude, like, what would you be if you weren't a, like, rock, weren't a rock star? And he said, that's, he said, well, that's what I am. He said, that's what I, that's what I, that's who I try to be. That's who I, I am. I, I'm not, he said, when I need to learn something new, I ask Brad to teach me. Brad could make a living as a studio musician. He said, if I wasn't this, this, I'd be a half-deaf janitor. <laughs> I can see that. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, oh gosh, there's so many places I want to jump in at. Uh, but uh, something that comes to mind is there's a, um, Steven Tyler has a, has a autobiography where at the beginning of it, he says as a, he says as a kid, he was, dragged away by animals into into the woods have you heard that before like (laughs) so and then he said that that's actually like affected a lot of um you know his outlook on thing is that he's really comfortable in the woods but but sort of his life started his crazy life started in that way and i feel like you can see that but i wasn't you know like uh what do you make of that (laughs) oh well look steven is steven is so marvelously entertainingly um Sometimes brilliant, brilliantly, sometimes not so brilliant in his um, willingness to just be down, dirty, raw, and real. Um, yeah, Stephen, um, Stephen's parents had a resort in New Hampshire, Lake Sunapee. And so Stephen had a lot of time in the, in the woods as a kid. Um, his father was a classical pianist and a teacher, um, Victor. And lovely man. Uh, and so Stephen grew, Stephen grew up, little boy, underneath the, pia- the piano. You know, so there's, there's that, you know, with Stephen's classically trained. And he's also a kid who got the shit kicked out of him all the time because he had skinny kid, loud, hyperactive, these big lips, this big mouth. And he, he Stephen, Stephen caught a lot of shit. And until Stephen was a rock star, which happened for him in his teens, right where he began, um, he was an abused, bullied, beaten up kid who managed to find solace in those woods. And how did you, oh, when you first saw Aerosmith and you saw that they were in gypsy outfits and looking, uh, you know, like that their their look and I guess somebody from, you know, what you're saying is um, so earnest and true, but your initial meeting of them might have been of like a bunch of like absurd, you know, absurd rockers. Yeah, I don't know. What was your, and coming from your abstract, you know, abstract expressionism and the AM New York radio, which is like a special, that's just a you know, that sound was so special then and it doesn't really exist anymore. Like at that, you know, it's just really cool. I don't, uh, yeah. And I was, and I was there when the likes of 
WNEW, when FM radio started to become a thing. And you would listen to the radio and you could hear the DJ say, go, and now we'll listen to the (laughs) B-side. I feel like you just encapsulated the 70s. There we go. And so, oh, and you're asking me about how, you know, that... That encounter, that's those first encounters with those guys dressed, great description. Um, remember, or, or I, you know, I, I'm a New York City kid. So, I mean, you're talking to a guy who used to go into CBGBs exhausted from being up for days, being high and up for days, drop a black beauty, fall asleep and wake up 20 minutes later like a fucking rocket. So, you know, I was, um, I, 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 I'm in recovery for close to 34 years. I, people would say to me, oh man, Aerosmith, you must have unbelievable stories, orgies and right. Um, all of my New York city party seventies stuff is pre relationship with Aerosmith. Um, (laughs) You know, so when I met them, there was nothing about any of what they looked like or sounded like as humans, you know, as humans, as, as, as artists. When I met them, they needed to get their career back. Yeah. So did you steer the boat on kind of getting them to that point or were they already starting to do that before you? Before they were, you... So, so, so Tim Collins, who brought me in and who I just want to make sure this is said, who saved my life. And maybe we'll get to that. But uh, he also saved the band's lives and their careers. And so Tim had done the work, the job, um, the task, if you will, of getting the the, the guys in Aerosmith sort of one at a time um, into, into rehabilitative care. And so they were mostly, not all, but they were mostly through rehab and on a path of recovery. When I got involved, there were still a few to go. Mm-hmm. The band did want their career back. Right. And that was, so you were with them also uh, during the 90s years were, you know, more like music video years or more, um, I was going to say stadium years, but that's. Uh, yeah, well. Uh, not so much stadium, uh, a little bit, but, um, but solid, solid arena. I mean, as, as um, and, you know, I got involved officially in July of, 19, of, of 1987. And that was um, just, just as before the release of their second Giffen Records album, Permanent Vacation. I have something to reveal to you, which is that I also helped architect that career resurrection um, because I've produced all of these these albums. So a lot of this is not news to me, but it's fascinating through how you experienced this and what you did. And I've never, I think we've crossed paths with Aerosmith, but I don't think we've ever been able to speak before and I have never known what things are like from your side. I only have a very, I drop in and I work with a band and then I leave. So I have a very specific way of working and I know that you've been with them for a long time. And 
the role of a manager is completely different than what I'm used to doing. Like I, you know, when I've worked with the Beatles, you know, I, that's the closest sort of to heaven to me. And um, Aerosmith was a confusing band for me because early on they were really, uh, you know, lewd. <laughs> They're really incredibly lewd and really difficult to pin down. And the gypsy thing threw me. And, um, you know, I don't know if you were around for the Walk This Way. Um, Run Dips. Uh, What's that? No, so I, I um, it's so sweet. People say to me, oh man, you were with Aerosmith in the, you know, middle, mid eighties. And you know, what was that year? You know, I, you know, 1986 when they did that. No, I wasn't. I came in right after. Ah, uh, I can tell you what happened if you, if you, I don't know if you know. Well, I, I can tell you this. I'd love to, I would love to hear, Tim, I'd love to hear. Um, because I have, I have heard from, Stephen and Joe, right? Their side of from the day that the idea was introduced to them by Tim yeah. and Ruben, and I've now heard from DMC Daryl McDaniel's his side of that story. And interestingly, my what I heard, I'd love to know, you know, what you what your experience is was that the bands, the, the artists on each side said. Are you out of your fucking mind? It'll destroy our career to do this. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's totally true. <laughs> they're totally, they're totally, yeah. And that, that Jim Master J said to Run and D, Rick, when it comes to our career, Rick has never breathed a stupid breath in our lives. And if we, Rick thinks this is a good thing for us to do, we got to listen to them. And they all on both sides had an understanding. Again, this is my the version I got that if anybody objected to it, that it would never see the light of day. Yes, that's true too. Right. You know, and I mean, yes, Rick was really great, but who do you think Rick came to, to broker the deal originally? Right. So we spoke about it and he was young and hungry and he was the right guy to put those two people together because he was on the up and up and other producers were not handling that well, or they just weren't as hungry and they got pushed out and they should have, honestly. He's more both of their vibes and they both wanted to walk away and they were, you know, like, I understand on the one hand where, you know, sure, this is like a, a musical in a place where it was kind of genre in a way that is unnecessary. They're both sticking their necks out. But on the other hand, it's a musical collaboration. What's really to, you know, there's not a lot at stake in that way, except they were both, you know, bands that, that were successful, you know, and at the time I just, you know, they were handling it already and I had done, you know, difficult bands before. So this was, you know, I let him handle it. He did a great job. He's done a great job since. He has a great sensibility. Um, but it took a little while. I mean, I think what really came down to it was we um, we took them all to a Red Lobster one night and we kind of just had a roundtable discussion, you know? We all ordered, you know, lobster. We all got, a, you know, an extra Sea Mariner's basket back when they did that. And we just sat there and we, you know, nobody could leave until all the tartar sauce was gone was the rule. And that's, I always use that rule with bands. It's just like, we're not leaving until the tartar sauce is gone. And then it's usually resolved. So that's, you know, and 
it makes sense. But at the end of the day, it was it was cool for all of them. And then there was an aerosols. <laughs> aerosols wanted to use. I don't know if you know this. This might have been during their time. Aerosols wanted to use Walk This Way, and they were actually both up for it. But uh, they didn't like the way that the aerosols people walked. And so uh, they thought it wasn't cool enough, not masculine enough, and they killed the deal because it was sort of a it was sort of a prancy, it was sort of a prancy. Wow. Yeah. So that was my experience. But yeah, I, I, uh, I also want to hear your um, if you were there when they did uh, don't don't want to miss a thing. Were you around for that song? That was that was during your time. Um, I wasn't there for its its creation or its recording. Um, you, I mean, I can tell you about that for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you, you can fill, in, fill in my blanks, please. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. This is, uh, I guess I feel okay telling this story, like, you know, years after the fact and stuff. I don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to cross the band, but um, I feel like this is okay. Uh, you know, that song was originally written for Celine Dion, right? And um, they took over the lyrics. But again, I did not use the Red Lobster tactic. Uh, I ended up being called into the back room of a place in Las Vegas. And Steven Tyler was sitting there with um, Celine Dion. And they were smoking hashish in between her sets. And they were also smoking some, it was amber, just straight amber, like ants are trapped in. It was the two of those things together. And then they they really just decided that, um, you know, Stephen had missed some things. And she had said, you know, but what if you don't miss the rest of the things? And she said, I think this song is for you. And then he said, I don't I don't want to miss a thing. She said, that's it. You're you're in. And then from that, they did that song. Uh, I think they were already a Super Bowl, a Super Bowl band by that time. But um, yeah, so that was it. They just had the handoff. It was very simple. Uh, you know, I just kind of nodded and left and they they handled it. And uh, I walked out and she did her second set. Hmm. <laughs> that was it. Did you hear something different? Well, you know, I never heard that story. So um, uh, what I do know is that um, Stephen had broken his knee. The, mic, the bottom of the mic stand had hit his knee when he was swinging around. And that interrupted the band's tour. Um, and they had an album that was out, uh, Nine Lives, I believe it was. And they were on tour supporting that album. And um, so that tour got interrupted, which of course had an impact on ticket sales. Album was falling off the charts. Um, Stephen was all, almost fully healed, getting ready to, uh, to come back out and for the start the tour again. And then Joey Kramer, um, we, we affectionately, jokingly say, tried to light a cigarette with his Ferrari. Um, but Joey was in a, in a fire in his car, and that further delayed, set the tour back. So now the band's album was, was failing. Um, the ticket sales uh, coming back were, were kind of shitty. And then Armageddon comes out. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing is released. It's because it's Aerosmith. It's on hard rock radio all over the country because it's a beautiful ballad. It's on top 40 radio all over the country. It's covered by a country artist at almost the same time. Now it's on country radio all over the country. 
and becomes one of the most played songs ever simultaneously in the history of radio in America. Amazing. And I know. Yeah. Ticket sales started to sell out. The tour records and catalogs started to sell. Um, it was the Aerosmith's first number one top 40 hit. We, you know, kind of looking at the band and I'm thinking, wow, it's like, are these guys the luckiest humans right now or what? Right. And then, of course, they, they, you know, acquit themselves quite well when it comes to live performance. So they are, um, yes, I have a bias, but whether you like Aerosmith or you don't, you want to see a great rock and roll live show, they are one of the great, great live rock bands. It's so amazing how they, I mean, that they've had a 50 year career and that they keep, I don't know, it's, there's really not a lot of bands like that, like the Rolling Stones, you know, are they, I'm although, sure they Although the original guys, you know, and Brad Whitford once said the five biggest fans of Aerosmith are those five guys in that band when they're playing live on, on stage, you know, they notoriously argue, out each other, do all kinds of things, often quite publicly. But, you know, to watch them play live, they were, you know, I mean, they're, they're playing now in Vegas. They're still out there. They're, they're still, right. right. I can't even imagine having to be, a, you know, that kind of a family is pretty intimate of what can you put up with for 80 years? I mean, from 50 years with anybody. You know what I mean? Um, so that the fact that they actually figured out how to do that and that they're still doing it and that, uh, I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Keith Gard co-managed Aerosmith from the late 80s through 1995 and continues to consult for the group today. He has over 30 years of experience in recording slash touring artist management and founded PK Management. His new CBD coffee line at rockincoffee.net. Tamara Federici was crying when she met you now she's trying to forget you. The producer and editor is Will Velasquez. The audio engineer is Clark Jackson. Executive producers are Carl W. Adams and Tamara Federici. Follow every band ever on Instagram.